So it's March 24, 2020. I'm in Lahore, pretty much on my own. Much of Pakistan has been under lockdown for over a week now. It's about this time that uh, my mind is starting to get into this idea that I'm going to be in this for a while. And it's really difficult to think through this. But the one thing that I didn't have to contend with or deal with in that moment was the idea that I'm going to lose my job right now. I didn't lose my job. I still have my job. So I wasn't worried about economic instability. I wasn't worried about loss of wages. But that's pretty different from how the majority of maybe Pakistanis had to deal with the situation. See, COVID-19 brings the world's economy to a stop. Most countries decide that they're going to close their borders because this disease is spreading so much. For a country like Pakistan, our main export is cotton textiles. And if you shut down the possibility of exports, well, all those factories shut down, thousands of factories shut down. That means that hundreds of thousands of workers are now laid off. It's not just that the international borders are closed, but even inside the country, everything is shut down. So you can't even try your hand at some other kind of work, which is hard to come about anyway. But like barbers are out of work. Right, Those people who sell stuff on the sides of the street, they're out of work. Recently, this economist Faisal Bari put it this way. He says, lockdowns disrupted businesses and income-generating opportunities almost completely. But even after much of the lockdown restriction has been lifted, business has been slow to come back, and this has meant lower demand for employees as well. So the effects of this shutdown weren't simply back then, they're still ongoing. And Pakistan, like many other countries, is experiencing a recession. That's when the economy contracts instead of growing. So on March 24, 2020, the government of Pakistan announces this fiscal stimulus package or this bailout for 1.2 trillion rupees. That's a lot of money. Pakistan's government is not the only one doing that. The United States government, for example, was just pumping trillions and trillions of dollars into the economy. It was just unprecedented. So clearly there's a relationship between government and business or between the state and market or between uh, politics and economics more generally. That said, if you listen closely to the way that I was speaking, you'll notice that I treated politics and economics as being outside of each other. So they're different spheres and they don't really overlap. I treated COVID-19 as an exogenous or external shock. And exogenous just means something that's outside of the system. So you have COVID-19. It's exogenous. It shocks the global governments. Global governments are exogenous outside of the economy. And they shock the economy first by stopping it. And then they inject stimulus into the economy. Even if you think of the word injection, it's generally we're talking about a substance that's outside of the body that's being injected into the body. And that's how we talk about stimulus. We talk about a bunch of money, the substance that's outside of the economy that's being injected into it. The reason that I can speak about the economy in that way, or we can speak about the economy in that way in general as something separate, is I think because when we talk about the economy, what we are really talking about is the market or a set of interconnected markets. And the idea generally is that markets basically just operate on their own. They're autonomous and that they best operate when they're left on their own. So we can quickly review the logic here. If I'm a buyer, I'm going to go to the market and I want to buy this thing at the lowest possible price. And if there's a lot of suppliers, if there's many suppliers and they're competing with each other, then one of them is going to sell it to me at a pretty low price because that supplier is going to be like, I need to sell my thing. And I would like the highest price that I can get for it, but everybody else also has this thing, so I better give you a low price. 
And so if there's a lot of supply in the economy, then the price of a thing would fall if there's restricted demand. And on the other hand, using the same logic, if I go looking to buy something and there's not a lot of supply, there's not a lot of suppliers, there's not a lot of competition in this thing, there's really only one supplier, then that supplier can basically set his or her price, especially if there's a lot of buyers, if there's a lot of people looking for that thing, then, you know, it's Eid for that supplier. And when you have like thousands of people doing this or millions of people doing this across an economy, then eventually you're going to get to a stable point. You're going to find what's called an equilibrium price at which the supply of goods and services matches the demand for those goods and services. And if you think about economics or just the textbook definition of economics, then you'll see that really this is what it's about. So let me quote from this one textbook, which is called Economics, and it's written by Nobel Prize winners Paul Samuelson and William Nordhaus. And their definition of economics is that it's the study of how societies use scarce resources to produce valuable goods and services and distribute them among different individuals. Now, when they're talking about scarcity or scarce resources, what they're saying is that there's just not enough of this to go around for everybody. That doesn't mean that you don't have abundance. You can have abundance in certain times, certain places, in certain moments. But really, in general, when we're talking about things like we, we don't have infinite resources that can simply satisfy everybody's wants. And so given this scarcity, most economists would basically agree that the best way to allocate resources or to distribute resources is through markets, is through all those people figuring out what is the price that I want to give, what is the price that I want to buy this thing at. And the other thing that most economists would agree on is that if the government tries to intervene in these markets, they may throw those stable points of equilibria out of balance and end up causing more harm than good. So let me give you an example. There's a political scientist, political economist. His name is Robert Bates, and he has an excellent book. It's called Markets and States in Tropical Africa. And in this book, what Robert Bates is saying is that throughout the 1960s and 1970s, many governments in third world countries or developing countries had these marketing boards for grains. And these marketing boards would set the price of grain really low. And farmers were obligated, they had no choice but to sell their grains to these marketing boards. And what those marketing boards would do then is collect all of that grain, and they would sell it to international buyers on the international market. Now the prices in the international markets are high, and the prices that the marketing boards are taking from farmers are low. So what do they do with the difference? They take that money and they invest it into industry or they invest it into other government programs. And that sounds like a good idea, but Robert Bates is saying, no, hold on a second, there's a problem here because those farmers aren't getting a good price. And now many farmers are like, why am I even in agriculture? So they leave agriculture or they might take those goods and instead of going to the government marketing board, they'll try and cross the border and illegally smuggle those goods across the border and sell them somewhere else. And when they do that, then the government doesn't even get the tax revenue. It would be much better if the government just let the farmers sell on the international market directly, because at least the government would then be able to tax them. So this idea that markets are best left to their own devices is pretty important in what we can call classical liberal thought, although it also shows up in what's often called neoliberal thought, and they're often more or less the same thing. But the classical liberal view, and I want to clarify that by liberalism, we're talking really about its economic aspects. You know, I'm not talking about uh, the idea that 
boys and girls uh, go around and get to do whatever they want to do. We're talking about liberalism in its economic terms. There, the classical liberal view holds that the thing that the government needs to do or the state needs to do is really stay out of the market and let the market do whatever it wants to do. If the government or the state wants to do something, then they should be protecting private property rights so that people are secure in the transactions they undertake. They should similarly be enforcing contracts because uh, if I enter into a transaction with you, I want to know that you're going to hold your end of the bargain and the government should enforce that. And then there's other stuff the government can do to enable trade, to enable exchange like building roads, building canals, building communications infrastructure. That said, there's these other groups of liberals and you can call them social liberals or modern liberals. And their perspective argues that actually markets do sometimes fail and when they fail, then the government should step in. There are social goals that we need to be upholding. So with the example of Robert Bates, industrialization might bring a net benefit to society. Even if some farmers lose out, then industrialization may reduce scarcity because it enables you to have more goods. And the other thing is that as industry develops, as cities develop, then those farmers can leave their agriculture behind and they can go to the cities and get jobs at those factories and they will probably earn better wages and that way their lives will improve as well. And so even though it may look like in the short run it's not good for farmers, in the long run it may actually be pretty good for farmers. Let me give you another example. Should providing healthcare services be left up to private agents in the market or no? But even if we look around ourselves in Pakistan, we'll often see that if you leave healthcare up to private markets, then a lot of people, a lot of poor people especially, that's the majority of our country, are going to be shut out of those hospitals that offer good quality health care. And so we might say that actually the state should step in and provide at least part or the whole of health care. Now, it's a different question entirely that the state in Pakistan can't provide quality health care either. That's a question for debate later. So as you can see, the modern or social liberal perspective is pretty different from the classical liberal perspective, which is saying don't intervene in the economy at all. Both views, however, are liberal because both of them agree that the highest value should be placed on individual liberty and on individual rights, and that the goal of economic life is to maximize individual welfare. So from a broader liberal political economy perspective, the kinds of questions that you might be asking would be, what's the best way for the state to manage economic affairs? Or you might be asking, what's the best way for the state to manage private and public interests? And if there's a contradiction between the two, then how would you manage it? So this is one way to approach the study of political economy, which uh, at its broadest just inquires into the relationship between politics and economics. And more specifically, the way that I've been using it, I've been talking about the relationship between states and markets or government and markets. But there are other ways of approaching the relationship between politics and economics. And these kinds of approaches would be looking at what are the social relations and power relations that cut across both states and markets. So in this case, both the state and the market are endogenous or they're inside a broader system or set of systems. And what's important about these systems is not just how goods and services are traded and exchanged, but also how are goods and services produced. 
So both the production and exchange of goods and services is conditioned or it's impacted by the system that they're produced in and the systemic social relations or power relations that exist in there. The other thing about this kind of critical perspective is that it does not assume scarcity. Scarcity is not the point from which you begin. When you're producing something, you imagine that you're producing a surplus. So a surplus is like if I'm a farmer and I'm producing 100 tons, but I only need 40 tons of food in order to go through the year, then that 60 tons is the surplus. So after I've met certain requirements, whatever remains, that would be considered the surplus. For a critical political economy, the question isn't necessarily one of scarcity as such. The question is, how is a surplus produced and how is scarcity produced? So scarcity is seen as something that's actually produced. It's not just a naturally existing condition. Let me give you an example here. Let me quote the Food and Agriculture Organization, which is like the United Nations of uh, Agriculture and Food, that about 30% of food produced for human consumption around the world is either lost or wasted each year. And the Food and Agriculture Organization is also telling us that every year 680 million people go undernourished. So on one side, you've got at least 30% of the food that's being produced for human consumption is going to waste, or it's just getting lost. Like, I don't know where they lose it, but it's lost. And on the other hand, you've got nearly 700 million people who are going undernourished, right? Clearly, the problem here is not scarcity. Now, the interesting thing about a lot of hunger or a lot of malnourishment or food insecurity is that often the same people who are involved in producing the food or in processing that food are often the people who suffer greatly from food insecurity. The problem is not scarcity. The problem is that even though I'm the one who's producing the surplus, I don't have control over the surplus. Who does have control over the surplus? It might be an employer who owns the business or a landlord who owns the land or a money lender or a bank that's given me money. And so I produce a surplus, but I have to part with it and give it to these other actors. And so this question of who can control and distribute surplus because they own the means of production or because they own productive assets, whereas others have to sell their labor power and they may not even receive enough of a share of that surplus to feed themselves, that is a question of class. Who has stuff? Who does not have stuff? Or the haves and the have-nots. Let me give you another example, and this has to do with gender. We know in India that within households, within families, girls are being underfed compared to boys. So if there is milk available, if there's food available, it's going to go to the boys. Boys get to eat first. And the thing is, it's not simply a problem in India. It's also a real problem in Pakistan. I've got friends who are doing research in rural areas, and they're going to tell you that that's the case. That might even be the case in, in your own family. Uh, or even, you know, the other day my mom was cooking, but she made sure that myself, my brother and my father ate first, even though she's the person who cooked the food. She produced the surplus, but she parted with it and made sure somebody else ate it first. So what's going on here? It's not like these uh, boys and girls in the households are on the market and they've got an allocation of money and then they're like negotiating for the best price that they can find. And as a consequence of poor negotiations, the girls got less food and the boys got better food or anything like that. It has nothing to do with that whatsoever. We're not even on the market. The food is in the household. What's happening there is that these social relations of power these power relations that revolve around gender have meant that those girls are going to get less food than the boys. Even in a family where there's more than enough food to feed everybody, again, the males are going to get a greater share of the food than the females. That is 
the question of gender that's given to us by the system, and the system is male domination or patriarchy. So in a patriarchal system, you have those kinds of relations. Now, the people who study surplus rather than scarcity, the people who study social and power relations in economics, they're generally associated with the Marxist or historical materialist approach or the Polanyan approach or the feminist approach or just heterodox economics in general. And these can be combined. These approaches are not necessarily mutually exclusive. They can be combined. But their key is that they identify social and power relations that are given by certain systems. I've already named the gender relations that are given by patriarchal systems. But class relations and really the logic of economic relations more generally is given to us by what uh, Marxists call the mode of production. And the mode of production that we're in is the capitalist mode of production or the capitalist system. And we can talk about that more in a few weeks. Now, if we take this alternative approach to political economy, then the kinds of questions that we ask are going to be different than the kinds of questions that liberal political economy generally asks. And here, let's turn to another book. It's called Class Dynamics of Agrarian Change. It's a really slim volume, so it's really, it looks really small. But when you start reading it, you're like, wow, this is really dense. And it's written by Henry Bernstein. Don't, don't let that scare you. You should read it if you ever get a chance. Henry Bernstein says, look, the key questions that we want to ask in this kind of political economy are, first of all, who owns what? So who has property, who can control productive assets, and who doesn't? Second, who does what? And this is the question of the social division of labor. So if I don't have land, then I guess I'm going to have to rent land from somebody else and work on their land. But if I do have land, then I can just kick back and relax as the rent money comes in. Or if you look at households, who's doing the work within the households? Mostly it's women who are doing the kind of chores in the house, cooking, cleaning, taking care of kids. It's not the men who do that kind of work in general. Related to this is the question of who gets what. So if I'm a worker, I go to a factory, then I get wages. But if I own the factory, I get profits. If I'm a slave, then I get neither wages nor profits. Like I might just get some food and some clothes. But other than that, I don't have an income over which I, at least in theory, have the freedom to decide where I get to spend it. And lastly, what do they do with what they get? So if I'm a worker and I get a wage, then I may not have enough money to save and think about the future. I just need to spend that money on rent, food, and other stuff like that. But if I'm a capitalist and I'm making profits, then I might be making enough money that I'm thinking about my future reinvestment. Where am I going to invest this money so that I can make a new profit? Or I might just be somebody who makes a lot of money and just holds on to it, right? I just hoard on to that money. That said, I think that it's also important to add another question, which is a critical question. The question is why? Why is it that some people own property or productive assets and other people don't? Why is it that some people have to labor while others get returns on their assets? And these kinds of questions are not going to be answered in theoretical models about individuals trading with each other on a market. Why some people have land and why some people don't have land has to be determined historically. It has to be determined by asking in a specific context what actually went down that meant some people had stuff and other people didn't. So if you take this kind of an approach of saying, look, it's actually systems that shape things that are going on inside of them through social and power relations, then if we think of COVID-19 or if we think of global pandemics, rather than thinking of COVID-19 or global pandemics as exogenous shocks that impact the economy, 
we might even ask the opposite question. We might ask, how does the economy or the economic system impact the global pandemic? Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we're going to be talking about the relationship between politics and economics broadly, but also about how political economy can refer to a lot more than just politics and economics. We're going to be inviting scholars to share with us the work that they're doing from different disciplines and different perspectives. I am your host, Numan Ali. I am an assistant professor of political economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. Let's talk now about how the global pandemic is impacted by the economic system, or if we're more precise, how the systemic organization of economic relations impacts the global pandemic. To get a better grasp of this, let's go back 100 years to 1918 and 1919, when the world was also similarly gripped by a global pandemic, which you probably know about by now. It's the Spanish flu. The kind of figures that we've got for global death tolls back then was about 22 million people died from this, although more recent estimates suggest maybe 50 million or 100 million people died from this. But what really got my attention, what really grabbed me, was the fact that up to 60% of people who died from the Spanish flu died in what was then colonial India or Western India. So what's now Pakistan and India? But why did they die in this part of the world? Here's another book, Mike Davis's book, The Monster Enters, COVID-19, Avian Flu, and the Plagues of Capitalism, which just came out. He talks about how influenza, the virus that causes the flu, is rarely acting alone. What influenza ends up doing is it opens the door for opportunistic infections, especially from bacteria. And when that gets into your lungs, you've got pneumonia. So just like the novel coronavirus that we're dealing with right now, when you have a weakened immune system, let's say because you're older or because you don't have appropriate access to food, then you're going to be especially impacted by pneumonia and it becomes especially deadly in you. And that's kind of the thing that was going on in Western India at that time. There was a drought. The rains weren't coming. And so food production went down. And as food production went down, the prices of foodstuff went up. Most people were just out of work or they just didn't have crops of their own to sell. And so without the money, they couldn't afford the food. And so there was a famine, mass starvation. And when so many people were hungry, when so many people were weak, their bodies just couldn't fight the virus. The other thing that was happening was that because the countryside was in crisis, a lot of people left and they went to cities. But when they went to cities, they were poor, so they lived in these overcrowded slum conditions. They couldn't socially distance from each other, and so the virus cut through just tens of thousands of people in the city as well. So regardless of whether you were in the countryside or the city, a lot of people were getting impacted and killed by the influenza virus. So already what you can see from this is that the Spanish flu was conditioned by the political and economic relations of the time. That is, uh, we can even figure out different political economies. The first is a political economy of global transmission. Where did the Spanish flu come from? In India, at least, that's not where it began. What happened was that Indian soldiers who were stationed in Europe came back to Bombay and they brought the flu back with them. Now, what were Indian soldiers doing in Europe in the first place? They were fighting in the First World War on Britain's side. Why were Indians fighting for Britain? Because Britain had colonized India. And Britain had colonized India for economic reasons. 
mainly to take our wealth out, which they did a pretty good job of. The other thing is that the war, the World War I between different powers, was fought between these European colonial powers mainly for political and economic reasons. So we can also look at a second political economy, and that's the political economy of agriculture and food production. The shortage of food and the increase in prices wasn't just because there was a shortage of grain. It wasn't just because of the drought. There was actually enough grain to go around. But the British were exporting the grain to Europe, and they were making sure to take a lot of it so that they could feed the soldiers. So there was grain for the soldiers, but there was no grain for the people back home in India. Even in a condition of drought, you were exporting grains, but you weren't thinking about domestic or local consumption. That's related to a third political economy, and that's the political economy in which malnutrition or exposure to disease actually takes place. That has to do with who has wealth and who doesn't have wealth. Who has wealth can afford to socially distance, they can afford good food. Those who don't have wealth cannot afford that. Where did wealth come from? By and large, it's related to those people who own assets like land or capital. And when you're looking at land ownership in South Asia, in India and Pakistan, that is also heavily conditioned by British colonization. So influenza hits the poor and the people of the lower castes much, much more than it hits the richer people. That includes white British people who are in India at the time or the upper class and upper caste Indians. When millions of people were hit by this disease, it was not the rich people. And again, the ultimate problem was not shortage of food so much as it was the fact that you could not afford food because you didn't have access to land or to employment. Fourth, there's the political economy of healthcare and public health. The British taxed rural India. They taxed Indian peasants a lot to finance the Indian army or to finance other government expenses. But what they did not do to any significant measure was to spend money on healthcare and health systems. And so when the flu hit, people didn't have any kind of aid to fall back on. So that's a question of state capacity and where that comes from. Looking at these four political economies, we can start to understand that the Spanish flu in colonial India cannot be understood outside of the British colonial capitalist system which India was under at the time. If there wasn't British colonialism in India, the Spanish flu would have played out very differently. So the global pandemic that took place was not exogenous to the economic system, it was endogenous to the economic system and the political system. These political economies that I've spoken about have definitely changed over the last hundred years, but they haven't changed so much. There's so many similarities that it's worth exploring, and hopefully that's what we're going to be doing in the coming weeks. Next week specifically, we're going to shift our attention to a fifth political economy, and it's something that doesn't really get a lot of attention, but it's actually extremely important to pay attention to this. And that's the political economy of the emergence of diseases. Where do diseases actually come from? They're out there in the wilderness amongst wild animals. Animals, but how do they then jump to humans? So this novel coronavirus that we're dealing with right now jumped to humans, supposedly from bats. But how did that happen? Was it because somebody ate a bat? Was it because it's a specifically Chinese problem? Or is it that it's a conspiracy? Somebody concocted this thing in a lab. The quick answer to those things is no, it's not because somebody ate a bat. It's not because it's a specifically Chinese problem. And it's not a conspiracy probably wasn't created in a lab, as far as we know. The scientific evidence points to a more complex chain of transmission. And to understand that, we have to understand not only biology, we also have to understand the political economy of food and agriculture. So we're going to talk more about that next week. For now, just remember that there are different 
ways of looking at political economy, and there's different ways of asking and answering questions around the same kinds of things. From the liberal perspective, as we've seen, the main questions of economics are concerning the distribution of scarce resources, and the key questions of politics is what states and governments should do. So what is the best way for the state to manage economic affairs? What's the best way for the state to manage private and public interests? As we've seen, the key questions can be answered quite differently by classical liberals on one side or social and modern liberals on the other side. So even within liberalism, there's a difference of opinion. From critical perspectives, from historical materialist or Marxist or Polanyan or feminist perspectives, the key questions have to do with power and social relations that condition the production of a surplus and its distribution. So the key questions here involve who owns what, who does what, who gets what, what do they do with what they get, and why. And I think it's with that poem that I'm going to sign off for today. Thank you for listening, and uh, until next time. <laughs>